Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to the Games for Girls podcast. This week, I am so, so excited to have this guest on. She is a three-time Olympian. She's a three-time world champion. Um, so not, But not only is she a phenomenal athlete, she's a trailblazer for protecting women's sports. Check out my interview with Inga Thompson. So, Inga, first of all, you are incredible. You are inspiring to me. We just spent some time together down in Knoxville, where we kind of orchestrated this rally alongside some other groups, which was really powerful. And we'll get into how it was powerful in a little bit. But I want you to just start off by sharing your accomplishments, sharing your achievements, and really how you got to the position that you're in now. Um, I, I originally started off as a runner for 10 years. So I, I had, boy, I started training, I think, when I was 10 years old. I mean, that's what all of us do to get to the level that we're at is we start training as children. So I had 10 years as a runner under this amazing coach, Lyle Freeman, uh, was on a running scholarship um, and was injured when I picked up a bike, you know, just to try to train, try to keep my fitness. And then I saw on the TV, they had the first women's tour de France ever. They were going to have the first women's Olympic road race ever in bicycling. And I thought, that's what I want to do, thinking I could just like, at least for the Tour de France, I thought I could just sign up like any runner does. You know, you can just sign up and just go. Having absolutely clueless to the, you know, the team dynamic and everything that goes on to be on a team. And anyway, so I started racing my bike and I think I did five or six races and qualified to go to the Olympic trials. And I'm like, woohoo, you know, and went to the Olympic trials and I made it on an Olympic team. And I just had this, this, stellar start and from there I've been on three Olympic teams and I've got three medals at the world championships and 10 national championships and podium finishes at the Tour de France or the polka dot jersey um it, it I, I hit my niche you know I've always kind of said you got to have kind of like the perfect storm you have to have the training the dedication you have to have the gift of the the, the physical genetics and you have to have the incredible work ethic and the ability to to suffer and then you have to find the sport that fits you and as a runner I was too tall too you know the list can go on but you put me on a bike and and the fit was perfect and and here I am talking to you <laughs> I like I like how you said suffer and I don't think a lot of people understand while of course there are benefits to playing sports and the good and most certainly outweighs the bad. It really is suffering. Um, the amount of time and the amount of dedication and the effort and the sacrifices that you have to make to compete at that highest level and you being on three Olympic teams. I mean, I, I, I don't think people can grasp fully what that suffering um, really looks like. But, but you mentioned you're here. You're here now. You're talking to me. Talk about what got you into advocating to really save women's sports because you are a leading a leading voice on this issue. What got me into it, actually, let's step back. You know, I, I have a lot of transgender friends 
And when I first heard of this ruling, I believe the science that that we were told. I, you know, we were told that that this was fair, and that when they dropped their testosterone level, they became weak. And 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 I believed that lie for a long time. And then I started noticing that the sport was being dominated by men with gender dysphoria. And then I started hearing the the women talking about how frustrating it was. And then I started to watch the bullying of, of Rachel McKinnon slash Veronica Ivy. And I it, it left my it kind of left my jaw on the ground that there could be this blatant bullying of of the women at these races and it was getting all of this this press. And and it, it just seemed like something was so wrong that a bully could get so much press. If that was a woman saying stuff that about other women, they would have been sanctioned. They would have been, you know, penalized. They, and it was like, if you were trans, you could, you could do anything. You could bully the women and it was actually considered to be okay. And I found that to be quite <laughs> admirable. <laughs> yeah. And so I ended up writing a letter to the, uh, to the Olympic committee. And I said, if, if this is so important and ha- and including transgender people is so important and with the amount of transgender people that were you know coming and you know coming out and declaring who they were and self-IDing I thought it's time to build a category for them and and I still believe that you know if they had started 20 years ago developing a category for transgender women to compete in they would have a well-established sport with tons of support and you wouldn't have these angry women and you wouldn't have this political divide if they had just done it correctly from the beginning right but here we are and and even though the international cycling union has changed the rules now another set of people are really going to be hurt transgender people but now women's sports is protected but women suffered for the last 20 years and I'm just I'm very sorry that this rule was ever passed to begin with because of the amount of hate that has gone on the amount of jobs that have been lost people that have been vilified wrongly called transphobia I mean this has just been the worst social experiment that has ever happened to people you know and and you know when it first just started off with sports and then then I vaguely remember hearing about the bathroom bill thinking oh that's not that big of a deal you know we have stalls that close but then it turned into what happened with you in the locker rooms and once again just when I thought that I couldn't be more upset I thought about not about where I was at that age and you know I went into colleges as a virgin had never been around men and to think that the first time that I was exposed to a man was against my will in a locker room everything seems so benign right again and and it's not benign and i the term social experiment that you use it really is just that but with us as women and young girls being the collateral damage in this social experiment it's us who are at jeopardy it's our sporting category it's our safety in our sports it's our prize money it's our lo- our privacy in the locker rooms it's only affecting really putting us at jeopardy 
as women. And so I think that term social experiment is really powerful. Um, you mentioned Veronica Ivy. I, of course, I know who Veronica Ivy is. Um, I have been on some, some different debate radio shows and different things with him. And I, I see him on Twitter. Um, but for those who, who don't know who this is, uh, would you be willing to kind of share a little about who this person is and what they do, especially in the world of cycling? My first um, interaction with Rachel McKinnon and Veronica Ivy was when I had put forth a letter to the Olympic Committee and I made it and I made the letter public. You know, we had, you know, hundreds of signatures from Olympians. And what was shared with me was a a private chat group that they had somebody and it was Veronica Ivy instigating. She had a she had an army of, of women behind him, women that were going after the jobs and names, sponsorship of anybody who had liked my post asking for a third category. And so here's Veronica Ivy asking these people to go after their jobs, asking them to, you know, eviscerate me publicly. And then shortly after that, um, here comes Tara Sepulveda threatening me with a baseball bat on social media. Veronica Ivy, I was one of the people listed that, you know, I was a turf that should die in a grease fire. And, and, and it, it just furthered my resolve. And then you start getting attacked from this army of people that go after you, going after friends, um, going after jobs. I mean, it, it, it's, it's ludicrous the amount of hate that comes out of this transgender radical advocate group. And yet, at the same time, the two transgender people that I know, they're like, this is not who we are. This is not what we do. We don't infiltrate women's faces. We understand we have gender dysphoria, and they they like women, and they respect women. And what this ideology does, and this self-ID, is it opens up this loophole to the men that claim to have gender dysphoria. And sometimes I wonder if they're just about men that women and there are two that is opportunistic as to how to get in there and really tell women you know really dominate women and all in 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 in, in the worst possible totally again it, it's it's a power trip and if you look at this for what it is why are we seeing women go into men's sports or men's prisons or men's fraternities or men's restrooms and it's, it's an it's an ego trip. Um, it's a way for these men to feel dominant. It's a way for these men to feel powerful. And again, that's not to say that's the case for every single trans person. I, I, I do believe there are people who struggle truly with gender dysphoria. But how can we not acknowledge that the systems that we have in place, um, it, it doesn't just limit these, these women's spaces for people with gender dysphoria, especially with the self-ID laws. Um, to simply say I am a woman and, and you get access to these these places, you get to infringe upon our rights simply for saying I am a woman. Um, you're right, the, the term ludicrous, it, it is absolutely just that. Uh, and we've seen cycling. Cycling, was, cycling has been one of the worst sports in terms of infiltration of men into the women's category. Uh, I have seen it time and time again uh, at all levels, right? And so... I think it's incredibly interesting because the UCI, uh, which is the the International Cycling Governing Body, correct? Right. 
just a few months ago, they doubled down on their stance of allowing men, trans women, to compete in the women's category. But just a few weeks ago, we saw the UCI take a totally different approach. And can you walk us through what their new guideline really is? Well, a, a little bit of back history on this one. This is where people like you are super important because there was a huge group of us that that advocated for this. And right after Austin Killips win, who's, you know, he's a transgender woman, uh, his, his win at Tour of Gila, there was outrage. And the International Cycling Union, they doubled down. They say we we stood they stood by their policy of having transgender women in women's sports. And then that's when we called for a protest. And the, the women over in Glasgow were putting together a protest at the World Championships. And then we did our small protest that you were there with. And I think that really got the attention because when you think about it, they've had the science that shows that this is not fair for years. And there's just more science and more science. So the women started getting louder. The women have started getting angrier. And there was a group of us trying so hard to get a seat at the table. And we couldn't. And then CPA Women, which is the, the Cycling Professional Association for Women, the recognized governing body uh, that the International Cycling Union recognizes, they wouldn't even give them a voice. And so they they did a survey. CPA Women did a survey of just pro-women. And 93% said, no, they don't want transgender women in their sport. We put that forth to the International Cycling Union. And they came back and they said, well... Um, we're not going to really look at that because that's just based on feelings, not on science. <laughs> that was the funniest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but I'll leave out the feelings of men. You allow them to compete with women, but you, you, you can't access the feelings of the women or, or you can't take that into account. And so then um, from there, we, we, we kind of doubled down again trying to fight. And so then we put forth the science to all of the, the professional cycling women. And then they said, we were transphobic and bigots for trying to change their mind by showing them the science. It was like, you just couldn't win. And we kept exposing the hypocrisy of this. And so when we called for the protest, a couple days later, the International Cycling Union said, well, maybe we should rethink this. And then I knew that they were serious when they brought in World Athletics to argue the science behind it. And and I think I think it was the social pressure combined with the science versus when this first got passed, it was social pressure of the ideology and the politics. But I, I think we have firm footing. I don't think that we could that we should rest on our laurels and not continue to fight for this, but we now have the science behind us plus women that are feeling empowered to start speaking up. And so I, I hope this doesn't get changed back. We know how rules are. They can get changed. Up. Right. 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 Well, um, and of course, World Athletics is the international governing body of track and field, which has taken the same approach. And so now UCI has essentially followed that of World Athletics um, and FINA, which is the governing body of swimming. So so we're seeing more and more governing bodies, thanks to to people like yourself, Take this this approach, which is great. Um, they're, they're, it's the bold first step to prioritize fairness in women's sports and, and sports in general, not just women's sports, fairness in sports, which is what the foundation of sports lies in. But I personally believe there's some caveats 
to to these guidelines, um, at least in, in regards to FINA, um, which is again swimming. They left it open to if you transition by the age of 12, it, essentially the guidelines are if you've gone through male puberty, you can't compete with women. Uh, but it's leaving it up to interpretation that if you have transitioned by the age of 12 or through puberty, then you can compete against women. Um, even having transitioned by the age of 12, men still have advantages that, that won't be mitigated. Um, so can you talk about those advantages in cycling? Just just the difference between a male cyclist versus a woman cyclist. Um, what does that look like? Does lung capacity matter? Does does length? What what are the main ones in cycling that would make a big difference? You know, some of the main ones in cycling that you see is just like say having a longer femur, right? Uh, the the amount of uh, hemoglobin that you can carry because it's it's an endurance sport. I mean, when you get in these endurance and, and and you're pushing it to the utmost level, if you be, have a bigger heart. You could pump that much more oxygen. If you have a bigger VO2 capacity, pump that much more oxygen. I mean, the advantage, the, there's a reason that there's no women in men's sports. <laughs> I, I competed with the men all the time. So let, let's compare apples and apples, right? I am, or was, an elite women woman in my field. And I would race with the pro one, two, three men all the time. And I could hang in the field because there, there's a lot of drafting going on. If I was, you know, very, very smart about it, I could make an attack here and there and hopefully get in with another man's group that I could, you know, save myself and be in the peloton and try to save myself. But when it came to a jump, when it came to a sprint, anything with power, there was no way. They're just gone. This is where they have the 45% advantage. When it comes to endurance, you know, maybe they have a 10% advantage, but you combine endurance with the amount of power, the jump, the speed, there's just no way. You come to a climb, they're gone. And so I spent 10 years racing with the men because we didn't have a lot of, women's racing hadn't really taken off yet. There wasn't a lot of events and there was a lot, there were some good events, but there was a lot of gaps. And so I raced with the men all the time. I never would have made a national team. I never would have made a pro team. You know, at the only reason why I was there was because I was considered a, a category one pro woman and I could race in that field, but I never had a chance of winning something. Um, and so, like I said, let's compare apples and apples. And that's just me racing with the men at the national level. I haven't even gotten to the international level. Never would have made it. Right. And you could. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, you know, something else that I think is interesting about cycling, which is which isn't the case for a lot of sports, uh, and it's a different variable to think about, is the effects on prize money um, and how women who are who rightfully earn prize money. This is their job; it's their income to win these races, and, and this, that's what feeds their family. Right? We're seeing prize money come into play here, and again, this isn't something we dealt with in swimming. There's not a lot of opportunity for professional swimming outside of, of making the Olympic team. Um, but there is in cycling. And so you mentioned Austin Killips earlier and how he was kind of a big factor in kind of understanding and changing uh, with the UCI's guidelines. Uh, can you talk about the prize learning aspect of it and why that's important? And 
how Austin Killips has benefited from this. Oh, in talking to the women that were competing, they were talking about Austin got all of the best bikes and all of the sponsorship, and he got everything handed to him because, you know, he's the most marginalized. And it's also, there's a lot of virtue signaling of, let's give to Austin because we look really, really good. And the women suffered in that area as well. And then you get into like the prize lists of money, Austin's cleaning up and all of those things. And those are more opportunities taken away from women. So he's, he's already getting sponsorship and bikes and making a lot of money. And the 90% of the women that I know that are racing are racing on nothing to maybe $2,000 a month that they get from their sponsors. I mean, they're, they're really, they're racing for the love of it. Um, just the other day, like we were, uh, we were at the Boise Twilight Criterium and there's a transgender woman in there. Oh, uh, they didn't win the race, but there was $1,000 preem and they took it. And it was like, here you go again, you know, another opportunity. And so the theft just doesn't happen with the prize money within the races they have. Let, let me back up. So what a preem is, is like, say during a criterium, you'll have a criterium is a one mile lap but you'll race for like 40, 50 miles. And within that race, there'll be prize money, you know, $50, $100, um, thousand, depending on what the sponsor wants to get in. And and the big creams were all taken by the transgender women. And then they left over the small creams for the women, you know, can't look like you're taking too much, but it was just so, it was just so clear. And this was a uh, Jenna Lingwood who has one woman's event after woman's event all the time. And, and you know when they're soft pedaling, when they're not really ter- and then, and this is part of the deception of well they don't win all the time. Well, one of the arguments is dopers don't win all the time either in bike racing because it's a different dynamic. There is team tactics that go on and opportunities, whereas within like swimming or running, we call it the race of truth in cycling. If you just race against the clock, it's the race of truth. It's just you against the clock. Yeah, and see that running and you see that in swimming. But in cycling has a whole other dynamic. Like you could look at Lance Armstrong, the strongest rider out there, and we know his doping regime. And he didn't win every race. He 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 won very few races, but he dominated everybody. And right. And so this with Leah Thomas. If you know anything about swimming, and again, I don't expect people to, right? But the way that he split his races um, is not indicative of effort. Um, he won an actual title on the first day, the second day, then placed fifth, and then the last place or the last day placed eighth in the hundred freestyle. And it was entirely strategic. And I'm not one to speculate. I'm not one to, but I am for certain. Just based off watching these races, you can see how he's not kicking as hard as we were. You can see how his flip turns. Were, were visibly different. And you don't have to be a sore to see these things, but it communicates the message that trans women can win, but not dominate. Right. And and I call it, you know, a sleight of hand that they, I mean, heck, we did this all the time in racing. Look a little bit weak here, look a little bit weak there. And then your competitor thinks that you don't really have it. And then you have it. it it's a tactic that we use in sports. Right. And, and if you have a trained eye and you know what you're looking at, you can see it. So like at Tour of Gila, watching Austin Killips, um, 
watching them ride, you can tell they're not breathing as hard. You can tell they're soft pedaling it. They're just winning by just enough to win, but they can't dominate too much. And, and, and we do this all the time. And Austin Killips, not only is he taking prize money, not only is he he slacking, he also, I've seen a video of him pushing a woman off her bike. It, it, I guess, helps to slow her down. I don't know. But I've seen this video of him visibly and, and blatantly pushing a woman off her bike when, when coming around a turn. I, I, am, I am still stunned. If a woman had done that to another woman, if a man had done that to another man, every official out there has told me it's an automatic disqualification. But it shows, again, once the preference that are going to the transgender women in the sport, no official wanted to touch it because then they were going to get labeled as transphobic. And then they had maybe some sanctions coming at them. So it was like, once again, it's like the transgender women get to operate under their their own set of rules. They get to put... Austin Phillips didn't push Hannah once. He pushed her three times. And this resulted in the end of her career. Which breaks my part as an athlete, um, knowing the value of sports, knowing again how much you put into it. I remember reading a quote from her after this. Her name is Hannah Arnsman. Um, after she was flanked on either side, I, I believe she placed fourth, and on and third place and fifth place was men, and of course the women's category. She lost her love entirely for cycling, and it, it resulted in her retiring. And that broke that broke me. I felt so bad as she she further on went with her quote saying she went over to her her mother and her sister who were on the sidelines who were crying tears for her. And it's just utterly heartbreaking. And again, you're right; it's affecting how people do their jobs. It's affecting how coaches um, how coaches protect their athletes. It's affecting how officials official. It's affecting how athletic directors administrate things because they are scared. They're scared of the name calling. They're scared of the labels. They're scared of this cancel culture that we live in. Um, but does it make someone transphobic or hateful or a bigot to acknowledge that there are two sexes and to acknowledge that the sex that the sexes are different on a biological chromosomal level that make men on average advantageous when it comes to something that requires athleticism or, or sheer strength? Is that really transphobic? No, that's that's believing biology. It's not bigotry. Well I mean here here's a I think you can see this comparison. Like when I quit cycling, the doping got to be too much. And and I was removed because I wouldn't dope. And because I hated the doping and I spoke out about the doping, does that make me doping phobic? <laughs> it, it, it means that it's not fair. And it's a legitimate complaint. Women deserve to have equal opportunities. You know, that the CEDAW Act protects us. Women women get equal opportunities in life. And this this is this is so easy because it's sports. We all know that the biology is different. I mean, we all figured it out before kindergarten. There's boys and there's girls. And studies show that if young girls are not given a sex separated sport, they walk away. So even allowing young boys in there. I mean, I, I know that we can have co-ed and stuff like, you know, that up to a certain point, but we, little girls need to have sex-separated sports because we aren't different. 
and to take, and to take that away from us is a it, it, it's a discrimination and thankfully most people see the discrimination but yeah. we're also seeing the continued um subjugation of women to allow this men's rights and that, that's what I've been calling it for years it's a men's rights movement to say we demand to have equal access to women's spaces and to to take women out of those spaces you can't tell me that doesn't come from anywhere but misogyny i think the term doping phobic doping phobia is if you apply this to any classification of which sports are, are categorized like let's say in boxing weight classes um does it make me fat phobic because I don't think a heavyweight should go against a featherweight? <laughs> Does it make me age phobic to think that an 18 and under shouldn't play against a 12 and under? No, <laughs> it does not make me. Phobic. No. And, and suddenly we're saying, Hey, it's really not fair for men to be in there. And we're, and we're transphobic. No, yeah. We're just, we're just asking for fairness. And if I was trying to do some lame comparison of like, okay, at my age, about the only person I'd be competitive against now is maybe about a 10 year old. Well, you both, girl. It's the many war. It's like, so if my gender identity is that I'm I'm infantile at times, my humor is, you know, um, and just don't get to identify where you want to be. There's a reason why we have classifications, and under that categories is to ensure fairness, right? So it's like, like let's just take women's cycling, or just women in general. And then underneath that, you have all of these under women, you have age classification and you have potentially, we won't do cycling, but like weight classification. And even within those weights um, or ages. And so we have like, you know, 10 to 14 and then you have under 23 and then you have elite women and then you have veteran women and you have master's women and and underneath every single one of those categories, you can be uh, category one, category two, category three, four, five. There are so many different categories available for fairness. This is why we have the age and weight and all the different classifications. Like, so, okay, so if you are um, in the prime of your career, you're a 20 to a 30-year-old woman, and even then you have to start off at category five and work your way up to being pro. And you have that within every single category of sports in cycling. And so to suddenly just take one whole classification of transgender women and then just dump them into the women is the absolute laziest way to go. If they really truly believe that transgender women believe should be in women's sports, then put out the effort to develop that classification, to develop the races, and to develop it. But just don't take something that women have worked for, for our whole lives, and then just throw everybody in it with with zero regards to the women and their thoughts and their feelings and their emotions. I mean, back, back to the misogyny of this is just over the top. Right. And that's ex- it is just that, is utter misogyny. Uh, and it doesn't take a feminist to see it. Um, you've mentioned doping a couple times, and I know recently you just went um and did a podcast or an interview style format with Lance Armstrong. I thought this was incredibly interesting. I thought you did an incredible job. 
Um, can you talk about that, kind of what he's uncovering and, and the perspective you guys shared together? Yeah, he, as as I watched his other interviews, it become vi- became very clear to me that this was something that he wanted to cover. He he felt like he'd been canceled so many times, you can't cancel him anymore. And I had to, you know, and, and I felt like he was a good person to speak about this because if anybody knows about cheating, and this is not a left-handed slight, if anybody knows about cheating and unfair advantage and how to get there, it would be Lance. And this is why I think that it was appropriate that he spoke up. And the right. uh, thing was like, even Lance has the moral compass to say, this is wrong. I may dope against all of my peers, but this is wrong. And even uh, Caitlyn Jenner that he interviewed said, how can these men with gender dysphoria stand on a woman's podium and actually feel good about themselves? What type of level of misogyny did it, does it take? Caitlyn Jenner didn't call it misogyny. I will. What type of misogyny does it take to stand on a woman's podium and actually feel like you deserve that? That it goes. Back, it goes back to the power trip stuff. Um, and, but, and but but anyway, but back to Lance. As I was watching him do the interviews, I saw somebody that had great intentions to to talk about both sides of this. But what I also saw was that he was very new to the discussion and missed out on a lot of the nuances and that he was being lied to, but didn't even know that he was being lied to. And that reminded me of myself when I first started, that I believed the lies, I believed the statistics, because that's what the media kept putting out there. There was such a push by the media to misinform people. And and I saw this with Lance was that he didn't really understand all the nuances like you and I would now that we've been at this for years and or we've experienced um, this. And so this is where I asked Liz, like you were talking about women's sports. You need to have a woman athlete on there to discuss this. And so it was kind of scary for me to going, you know, going on there because I knew I'd get a lot of, you know, you just say Lance Armstrong and you get a lot of vitriol, but I saw a person trying to to have a fair and balanced discussion. I think what he could he he couldn't get over the vitriol. He said when he was exposed when when he confessed to his cheating, he said he did not even get the shade then that he got asking for fairness for women's sports. And I thought that was absolutely. I mean, you see how much shade is thrown at Lance Armstrong when when he when he confessed that he was doping, and he said. This was this was worse. And I said, this is what we've been dealing with. Absolutely. It's worse. It's more vengeful. It's more hateful. It's more violent. It's more personal. I mean, the attacks that, that the opposition has, um, they know what they're doing and, and they want to silence us. They want to deter us. And so I appreciate you going on with him and talking with him. I, I thought it was incredibly valuable perspectives. Um, and I thought that he was able to learn a lot from you in y'all's conversation. Um, Wrapping up, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about the Inga Thompson Foundation. Um, Please, would you you be willing to do so? Yeah, so I set up my foundation in 2017 thinking that I would be, and, and I still am doing this, advocating for women, trying to get more media, 
because if you have more media and the women have more coverage, then more sponsorship comes in. I wanted to start at the top and come down. And at the same time, this is when I really started becoming aware of transgender women in the sport and the impact that it was having. And, and so I do work with women on, on many layers and levels that I don't even know how to go into, but not everything is about, you know, coaching or giving them a bike. There's so much emotional support that needs to go on. Women who have been raped and the issues that they have trying to sit on a saddle after they, I mean, these are, these are some of the things that I've taken on women who are in abusive um, contracts with sponsors and how to help them get out of this. And, and so the, the foundation helps women in, in many ways other than just, hey, here's a bike team. Let's get on a bike team. And then it kind of turned into this. We realized, many of us realized that women's sports would be gone in 20 years if we didn't tackle this topic first. And so the last few years, you know, the majority of the emphasis has been on protecting women's sports. And then I hope to one day be able to put 100% of my attention back to just, just the women. <laughs> and all in the meantime, <laughs> we are grateful for you. We are grateful for your voice. We're grateful how you're advocating for us. You're a megaphone. Uh, you have been a trailblazer. Again, you were ahead of the times. I think a lot of people only became aware of this happening in sports because of the Leah Thomas situation and the national coverage that that got. But you you have been advocating for this far beyond um, even myself even knew it existed. So, And likewise, your taking on the whole Leah Thomas is what really amplified this and around and kind of allowed the rest of us to be heard. Yeah, we may have been speaking longer than you have, but we weren't being heard. And you had the voice that that was heard because you had that first one-on-one -on -one experience of being in the locker rooms and the, and the losses that you suffered where the rest of us were retired. And I call it, you were the first one in the trenches to really get loud. And we so appreciate you. Well, on Yuri, um, I imagine we will continue having our arms linked and creating an army of people behind us to do just as we are. Um, so again, thank you, thank you, thank you, Ingad, for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining the Games for Girls podcast. Make sure you check out this podcast at outkick.com or anywhere where you stream your podcast, Apple, Spotify, whatever that looks like. Um, we look forward to seeing you next week.